Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Denisons, the Denisons, the busiest in the biz. You do know who it is. It's Dennis Quaid. That's him. Joining me today on the Denisons is the multi-nominated actress, Sharon Stone, my good friend. We discuss adjusting to our new normal during the pandemic, her 25-year commitment, advocating for those affected with AIDS, as well as her take on the Me Too movement. Thanks for listening. Sharon Stone, one of the most fascinating, interesting, smartest, sexiest, town most talented people who is a gift of the world, really. It's, it's amazing. And you have had the most incredible life. And I had the pleasure to work with you one time, and we got to know each other. Uh, starting with in the back of your car as we were being driven to outside of uh, Toronto to the set. It, it's really great to, to have you here. And as we had that to person pee in the is Sharon Stone. because <laughs> <laughs> we had to pee in the bushes together. Those Canadians, they don't have a lot of rest stops. How are you, Sharon? How are you, how are you handling uh, everything, the, the, the shutdown? And- well, I think for everybody, it's um, it's such a dramatic change in their lives. and such a huge shift. And I think the first thing that people want when something dramatic happens is they want it to go back to the way it was. Yes. I don't think that that's, you know, just COVID. I think if someone has a heart attack or loses their job or your marriage starts to fall apart or anything, a crisis, you know, your house burns down or we all feel that sense of crisis. And I think what's happening now is we're going through it together globally. Everyone's feeling that crisis. I think for those of us that have had any of these big life crises before, we feel a little bit more prepared because we've done it. We've done it before. It's really like an identity crisis, isn't it? I mean, I know when you go through a divorce or like what you were talking about, you have a, a health change, a heart attack, life is no longer the same that it used to be, and your identity is wrapped up in the things that you do and the time that you spend. And it's like a worldwide identity crisis. I call it actually at the beginnings of a spiritual reawakening. And if you ask God for something, it just doesn't come down like you would prefer it to come down. <laughs> you got to be careful what you ask God for because he just might give it to you. And I believe that that's happening. And I believe Mother Nature is kind of at the helm of this one. And, and I feel like it's a beautiful thing in its heart. And... It's changing us in many ways that I think are ultimately very beautiful and very good because the one thing that has to happen is we have to depend on each other and we have to learn to respect each other even if we don't agree. Yes, a discussion would be nice, wouldn't it? And another thing it's gotten us to do is to slow down, really slow down. 
I, mean, right. I just think of my own life and where I was and where I've been basically all my life. I'm not a human being. I'm a human doing. Right. And uh, I had to, you know, in some cases, just stop things and, and reflect. And that has to be good for everybody who's going through it. But what those results and benefits of doing all that is, I don't know if we've seen it yet. Well, I think, you know, we're into about six months of this and it takes 21 days to change a habit. So I think that we are, it depends on how resistant we are. I think you told me that in a car ride about smoking. Right. I feel like that this is like a certain cleansing period for us. Like we have to be with ourselves and we have to decide which of these things actually work and which of these things are really dragging us down. So I think that like we're starting to recognize, wow, we have, you know, respiratory issues. So let's cut out all the respiratory problems, but we're also suffocating our earth. So, you know, mother nature has respiratory problems. And so I think that that's very interesting that we have to stop our behavior or we'll have respiratory problems. Nature, I think, has a way of being in cycles as well. You know, it seems like we get a pandemic once every hundred years. Well, I mean, people say the Spanish flu was the last pandemic, but I spent my entire adult life working on the last pandemic, which is HIV. Yes. And And I want to ask you about that, too, uh, because when AIDS first came out, I mean, it was so many people were dying, or at least we were aware of so many people dying. And then Magic Johnson got it, really brought a lot of attention to it, and Rock Hudson and so many people, but they seem to get a a hold on how to keep it at bay with drugs. And then it just seemed to disappear in a way, at least from the everyday consciousness of most Americans. You yourself have dedicated your life to AIDS worldwide. Could you give us an update on what is going on now? Yeah, I can, because the situation is not quite as clean as people want to make it out to be. Um, as we went through this fight against AIDS, there were so many years when nothing was happening. And then eventually we funded scientific research through AMFAR that invented the drug nevirapine, which stopped mother-to-child transmission. But we look at third world countries where mother-to-child transmission, then how did the mother feed her child? because she can't use breast milk and the water is filthy everywhere. So the kids are getting malaria and all kinds of other things from the filthy water. So we have to start looking at the real necessity for clean water. Um, so it, there's many phases of, of dealing with pandemics. You know, there was a point where, you know, every few seconds someone was getting AIDS. 44 million people died of AIDS. That's the population of France. Can you imagine 44 million people? Now think about this, 40 million people are still living with AIDS and there's no cure and there's no treatment. So what there is, is are there, there are drugs that you could take. There's prep that you can take and there's treatments that you can take that will prolong your life but there's nothing that you can take that's curative. Right. And by prolonging your life, do you mean building your immune system? Well, like if we look up, you know, uh, for example, AIDS meds, right? There are drugs that you can take like PrEP that bring your, your countdown so that you can have sex 
and not transmit the disease, right? A one pill, once a day treatment, a complete HIV medication um, that you can take, right? You reach an undetectable phase at 48 weeks if you can take the drugs. Right. But 24% of the people who take it have side effects. And also, these kind of drugs aren't available for children. So we have to also look at the fact that, you know, children are still really, really at enormous risk from HIV AIDS. I retired from AMFAR through the Harvey Weinstein crisis. Right. Um, You know, Harvey had taken money out of AMFAR and used it incorrectly. Oh, my gosh. And I just felt like AMFAR needed a new board before I wanted to continue. Right. I hear you on that. I would like to ask one more question about it. And and that is, in your opinion, why is it in this country not still uh, very prevalent? Seems like I would know someone who was getting it or had had it because when it was going on, I did. Yeah, I don't think there came a stage where like everyone knew someone who had AIDS, whether it was yeah. someone from family or a friend or, uh, you know, a workmate. Everybody knew someone who had AIDS. And we're now in a stage where COVID is, is it, it's, it's taking off in that way where people wanted to ignore it and pretend it wasn't going to happen in the same way they did with AIDS. And then people are still not wanting to deal with it and the wear a mask, don't wear a mask. It reminds me of wear a condom, don't wear a condom. Yeah, it really does, doesn't it? And the whole behavior is very militant because you can't tell me what to do. Right. Yeah, but you know, you can die and you can cause other people to die. Ultimately, if you knew you had AIDS and you had sex with someone, it became a felony. And we we're gonna have to understand that if you know you have COVID and you're not being responsible, that too has to become a crime. Because yeah. we don't at the same place, we don't have treatments, we have data. We don't have curative things. We have data. And each thing that people try and that they think works, it doesn't, you know, it's only collection of data in this early phases. It's going to be difficult to to look at that as being a crime, whereas AIDS was really closely related to sex or drug abuse, i.e. syringes, whereas the COVID is in the air. And you sort of wonder, though, when people don't wear masks and then they get COVID. And they've been such a proponent of the non-mask wearing. Does their should their insurance cover their treatment? Well, that's that's the deal. It comes down to insurance companies. I think everything comes down to insurance companies. I mean, that's the reason that movies aren't being made now. That's the reason that they can't go forward with just about any project. That their businesses can't have their employees come in in many cases because of liability. Insurance liability runs the world. It seems. Right. But uh, hopefully there's going to be a vaccine. I'm sure you've been reading about that. The, you know, the Oxford has, has got one, and I think there's one in this country too. That's. I mean, we might get a vaccine. We might. And then will we get one? What are going to be the, the rules and regulations on drug companies? And I found with HIV AIDS that everybody was competing 
to find the vaccine. Right. If everybody had to share information, if it was the law that people had to share their information, we would probably have a vaccine by now. Well, the government has approached this in a very different way because you remember back in the 80s when AIDS came out, it was very skewed towards gay people, which was... Uh, Reagan was president at the time. And it's one of the things I think he regretted the way he approached it at first. Now this is about everybody. And so, of course, they've marshaled all the resources that there are. And it seems even countries are, are working together in a better way to, to come up with this. Sort of like World War II. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit of a heartache to me because I spent so much time in the pediatric wards and the hospice nurseries where there were so many infants with no parents remaining, you know, AIDS infants and AIDS babies all over the world. And there's nothing more heartbreaking than infants and children with AIDS and HIV and you can't, and there's no one here to help them or hold them or take care of them. And you just think there would be more empathy and understanding. Yeah. Well, we're all getting a lesson in empathy right now. We have to share our information. We should ultimately have a one vaccine for all people. And it should be free so that the vaccine is safe. And we're safe because everyone can have it. I remember the polio vaccine. I remember getting that as a kid. And uh, we got it for free. Got it at school. We all right. went down there on a Saturday and got it. And it really meant a lot. Of course, because, you know, poor and we, I mean, I grew up poor. We grew up poor. You, you couldn't afford to go do all that stuff otherwise. And that's really the key here. We can't have it be a competitive situation where you have to compete to live. Yeah. We're our products of where we grew up. And I'd like, and I'd like to get to you growing up, actually. You know, I remember in the back of the car on our way to the location, you were talking about your dad and how much your dad had been the biggest influence of your life. You were telling me about how he taught you things like how to how to walk and be quiet like uh, Native Americans by walking on the side of sides of your feet so you could be stealth. And walk in the woods without the animals hearing yeah. you and yeah. walking down the wind. Yeah. Right. And uh, it just seems like you had this really fantastic uh just magical relationship with with your father and the way you hold on which I wish I could have met him it's, oh you would he would have loved you too yeah. he would have loved him yeah you guys but, would have uh, really had a great time how did he influence you as far as becoming wanting to be an actor or anything or did you even want to be an actor back then when I really think about it and I think about the way that I sort of manifested in my childhood I think I probably would have been a director if it was a job that women oh. had because when I was a kid and I was sort of acting out the thing I wanted to do, I was directing, yes. you know, we had a two stall garage and a, you know, big driveway. And I would make one set in one garage stall and another set in the other garage stall and then <laughs> a picnic table set up with one bench in front and one bench on top. So I had three tier seating. <laughs> For the neighbors, and like a little uh, record player, I played all like parts of songs for like entrances and exits. And I had like you know I'd have a scene, and then I'd pull the garage door down and pull the other garage door up, and that would be the next scene. Wow! 
you know, I had it all mapped out, these plays I would write. So, so was it the Sharon Stone review? What was, what was? Yeah, that was kind of what I Well, I kind of did the same thing when I was, when I was a kid and it was not as intricate as you. I mean, obviously you should have been a director. <laughs> I'm just playing around. You really did the whole thing. But it seems like it was in your blood. The first introduction I know of you to show business, besides being an extra in a Woody Allen movie, was this whole Bob Dylan thing and about how you went to the concert. And well, the thing is, you know, that's a that's, mo- real? that's a mockumentary, and yes. all of us who are in it do know Bob. But Marty cast us and Bob, you know, Bob chose everybody who was everything. Right. So it was made up. A lot of people are taking it for real, including myself. And I was around the, the Rolling Stone review, went uh, many times to it back then. And it was very theatrical and it was, yeah, it was uh, a put on in, in, in so many ways, a send up. And at the same time, it's just the greatest thing going on. And it was. Well, he's so. So brilliant. Yeah. And his his prose, his lyrics are so Socratic and so beautiful and so important, I think. I mean, I, I really think he's a genius at and I don't mean that term flagrantly. Right. I think he's really just so extraordinary. And so it was easy for me, you know, we talked on the phone at length and I asked him a lot of questions about this particular thing. Uh, before we filmed and and um you know marty had asked me if i would do it and of course i wanted to do it and 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 you still had your kiss shirt right (laughs) (laughs) of course i know gene too and um you know they kind of made a sort of a script and there was a guy there to ask me questions but marty was sitting on the other side of the camera marty and i have a very kind of I don't know how to explain it. Almost like... You say the words casino, and that's all you need to say. It's like he can talk to me with his mind, and I know what he's saying. I just get him. Like, and he gets me. We have this strange symbiotic thing. I just, I don't know. I Well, first of all, he's Marty. I mean, I think he's the, just the freaking greatest. Yeah, who wouldn't want to work with Marty? And that that role, you in Casino, it's it's really just one of the greatest performances I've ever witnessed every time the movie is on, and it's on at least once a day somewhere, but I, it doesn't matter where it's at. I just have to just pop in. And if I do, I'm, I'm there until the end. And I was there for five months. It just sort of blossomed, this part. I mean, I didn't really do more than was on paper, sort of. Uh, well, you told me the story about when you first got there, it would be like the three guys, and then you just kind of came in and went, hey, you know, it wasn't like you were demanding. It's just that I wasn't really included in the beginning. Yeah, of course, because yeah. they're right. really a family, right? And I've done like eighteen following Marty around, and I was like yeah. Mark, Marty, yeah. Marty, Marty, Marty. I was like a terrier on his pant leg, and finally he turned around. And he was like, "What do you want?" <laughs> I'm like, "I want you to come in my room in the morning, like you go into Bob and Joey's room, and I want you to." demand from me like you demand from them and I want you to tell me what you want and I want you to push me like you push them and I want you to push me till I break I I want you to believe in me like you believe in them and and I want to take this all the way Marty and he's like that's what you want and I'm like yes and he goes okay easy to understand you didn't like go around you said in 30 seconds give it to me and that's what he did and I was like how do you take your coffee and 
I'm like, and what do you like for breakfast? And he told me, and I started baking so that it would be fresh and I would make him what he wanted for breakfast. So that he would come in in the morning and want to be there in the hair and makeup trail. Incredible. Yeah. Fantastic. And I was like, I've got to get his attention. I've got to make him direct me. That truly was one of the great roles of all time. It seems like they're not making movies like... Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I had hoped after I did that, I'd get invited to do a lot more great movies, but I haven't. <laughs> well, I, I would say that you've done, you've done quite a lot. But I just, I think in general, things have seemed to... The, the renaissance that was going on in the, in the 70s with films and that, you know, Marty Scorsese was leading the charge of and continued on into the following decades is now gone to streaming. And it seems to me that the movies being made now are basically tent poles and yeah. basically the same movie again and again. Yeah. The age of the movie star, in my opinion, is over. It's over, yeah. You know, I can't seem to name a single one, or they're f- very few and far between. Studios used to make at least, what, 50 films a year each, and then now they're down to like 8 to 10, and those have got to be very specific that they know that they're going to make money even before right. they are shooting. Right. And so there's no room for interest. And, but streaming has become really the place to be. I'm, I'm very excited. I just did Goliath with uh, Billy Bob Thornton. And, you know, just the feeling, that feeling of being excited to go to work. I, it, I love stuff. his show. Oh, I it's great. Show. Have you thought yourself about going into, into doing something streaming? Well, I have a show coming out in September 25th, I think it is. I have a show called Ratchet that I did with Ryan Murphy. It's the prequel to The Cuckoo's Nest. And Sarah Paulson plays Ratchet. And uh, Judy Davis is in it, who's just, wow. Like, well, I've got to see this. One of my favorite actresses of all yeah. time, Cynthia Nichols. Yes. Um, and I sort of play the fly in Sarah Paulson's ointment, like this kind of very eccentric, crazy, uh, villainous sort of character, which is, uh, and, and my, my regular person that I'm with all the time is this cappuccino monkey that's on my shoulder, for real. And it was wonderful. I thought when Ryan said, I want you to have this monkey, I was like, come on come on, don't do that to me. I can't have to deal with this monkey on my head the whole time. And no, he's like, no. I'm like, give me like a leopard. Give me something else. No, no, it's a monkey. And like really a monkey on my back the whole time. And I got this monkey. I was like, I want to meet the monkey first. I want to get to know the monkey. I want to hang out with the monkey. I met this monkey and it was extraordinary. This monkey had been in Pirates of the Caribbean and really knew how to be an actor and was so present and so communicative. And talk about a lesson in going back to being present in your acting. Wow. It was incredible. I mean, I have scenes where it's just me and the monkey, Uh like full dialogue and action and everything and it's it was extraordinary it was beautiful wow you had a real relationship yes and it restored me as an artist it was and it's hilarious and wonderful but 
it was just great. That's amazing. A monkey's purpose. Working with animals is it was it was just fascinating for me. You know, I've had a lifetime of experience with dogs. And it was rejuvenating to me to work with them because they're so in the present moment and they're so honest. They have to get to know you too. You know, it's got to be a relationship and they got to learn to trust you and you to trust them. And I kind of felt that a lot of ways they, they teach us things. Yes. You have to slow down. You can't mess around and just show up. You have to like be able to be willing to be open and present with them. Yeah. And whatever comes up, I really just loved it. In fact, we're doing a, a third one. We're going to do Dog's Purpose 3. I was such a sucker for this. Me too. <laughs> you know, my agent called me about that movie, George. He called me to let me know that I was being offered this. And I went, oh, yeah, well, what it's about. I haven't read the book. What is it about? And he got like two sentences into describing it. And I start to ask, I said, George, you got to stop because... I'm not going to cry over the phone. <laughs> well enough. I just tell them I'll do it. <laughs> Send me the script. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Yeah. But so I'm really glad to hear that you're uh, that you're going to be merging into the, into the uh, the monkey world, streaming the monkey streaming world. Yeah. I can't wait to see it. September 25th, and what's it called? It's called uh, Ratchet. Ryan Murphy's team wrote this one, and uh, Michael Douglas and and his group of people produced, produced uh, Cuckoo's Nest. Too. You right. and Michael Douglas have had a very storied career, right? Yeah, he's and always on the cutting edge. He always he is, knows what's happening. Yeah, he always knows where to go. What's happening is ahead of the curve. His socio political reality is so smart. It really is. Such a great actor. I really, I mean, in spite of, you know, Wall Street and winning an Academy Award and everything, I, I think so unsung uh, about what he meant for film. Oh, my God. Like, films about mental illness, films about nuclear reactivity, films about... Things about the Me Too movement way before the Me Too movement. Right. People seem to have forgotten about the Me Too movement and everything else since uh, COVID came along. I personally have, have not heard your take on it. And... I think you're a perfect person because you've been so great, not just for women, but just for, for film itself. And it, you're really advancing things. But I would just love to get your take on the post Me Too movement. I think it's a fantastic thing. And I think it's opened the doors for so many discussions. I think it's brilliant. And I think what these young women did changed the world for everybody. I mean, in my era, certainly in film, in the 10 years where I was just doing film after film after film, there was no one to tell. And if you told anyone anything, you'd just get fired. There was no, absolutely no one to tell. And as and growing up, of course, there's no one to tell. And the dialogue about sexuality and violence was so inappropriate. I mean, you know, if you're at school and someone hits you, a boy hits you, and you tell the teacher, you know, this boy's hitting me, well, he must like you. Right. And, and they tell the the parents of the boy, you know, he hit hit the girl at school and the kid goes home and the parents say, do you like that girl? Well, then that's a whole weird reality. So the boy grows up thinking, if I like a girl, I'm supposed to hit her or something. And the girl thinks if the guy hits me, he likes me. I mean, this is already such a warped perspective on how we talk about violence and sexuality and attractiveness, you know? I remember, you know, growing up, it was like... We were so shy around, but most guys are so shy around women to begin with. And it seemed like, oh, 
girls would be like with the like the tough guy that you know or that that myth going on you know the women were more attracted to guys who didn't treat them well or you know what i mean uh and and this, this whole kind of you know something's off about it rather than just sort of directness right. uh, between men and women you know once we got to be adults we sort of carried that same sort of teenage culture into our uh into our adult lives and of course it got propagated you know and uh through film and uh tv and the casting couch which is hope is seen as demise uh for sure and the whole harvey weinstein thing which but it really just came down to you know in the end it really just comes down to basic manners and courtesy and and respect and self-respect Yes, and self-respect. You're absolutely right. Sometimes uh, guys, uh, you know, I know the stuff that pouring out of their mouth is just, how can you have any respect for themselves? It's kind of a sign of low self-esteem to talk that way to, to women or about women. Right. I, I'm really glad that it happened. Uh, I think in some cases it, it, it did go a little bit too far. But This is happening all over the place. I think where the one nice thing about what's happening right now is that now that people are saying everything and uh, is that, and now that all this stuff is going on where everybody is bursting out with their feelings about stuff and demanding that things change, Uh of course, the first thing that comes out is all the suppressed hurt, all the suppressed feelings of rejection and hurt and pain. And when that comes out, of course, the meter goes far, far to the one side. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it happens with Me Too. It happens with Black Lives Matter. It's gonna, it happens with all things. That's what spiritual awakening is about, is it not? That's what comes out first is all the pain. Pain. Yeah. And so you can't, you, of course, you have to anticipate that in the beginning when people get to say the thing they say that's been suppressed for so long, it's just going to come out like the cork has come out of the bottle. And, and things are like, yeah. spew all over everybody. Takes a minute for it to get back into a space like, I liken this time to, I was living in Africa during apartheid and the beginning of the AIDS crisis in the early uh, 80s um, for about a year and a quarter, a year and a half, right? And so I start, I, I saw all that violence and all that fear and people streaming into hospitals, dying all around us, but no one knew why men, women, children. I mean, it was just unbelievable because this is untreated AIDS in the very beginning. And at the same time, people are getting shot and tired in the streets and, you know, Soweto was on fire and everything was like that. And when this first started, I said, it's like that. And this is going to go global because now we have global television. It's going to be much bigger than you ever imagined. And people are like, I don't want to hear from you. Like, but I've been, I've been in this. Uh-huh. This is going to be a global crisis. But in in apartheid, we had Nelson Mandela, uh-huh. and we had Archbishop Tutu. Okay, so we weren't looking at Donald Trump and this kind of reaction. We were looking at people who wanted to create truth and reconciliation hearings, right? 
And so we need truth and reconciliation hearings here now. We, we need that. We really need truth and reconciliation. And while we can't go back and change what slave owners did, what we can do is we can acknowledge what happened and we can start reconciling the present. And we need to do that. We need to reconcile what it is right now. And people need to be heard. And people who did violent things need to say what they did and own what they did. But there are also people who didn't, are ignorant, where we need to have people be able to state their ignorance and be forgiven for their ignorance and grow. We need to be aware of it first. (laughs) Right, exactly. And that's what I think that Nelson Mandela did that was so brilliant, is he allowed people to grow and learn from each other in a very heartbreaking, difficult time. We need people working together on these issues, in my estimation. We need people who are willing to say that we want to work together. We want to create a harmonious reality and allow people to be uh, respected and cared for and, and seen fairly and, and loved and treated equally and with respect. Well, it certainly has gotten scary over over the last few months with, with everything and it also uh, you know a lot of the the violence that happened is i think also in a reaction to the entire nation being shut down as well as all the issues that were they're going on to begin with and then just exploded out i think it surprised i think it surprised many people actually i believe in this country and i believe i believe that we can get through this you know, I look back in the annals of, uh, of of Congress. You know, going back, and they were always at each other's throats. They were caning caning each other on the street and having duels. And and uh, so, I wanted to mention that, like, one of the things that people don't really really realize is that there are 1.5 missing black men in America. That they're just missing. It's not like they're we know they're dead or something happened or they were criminals or any of these kind of columns where we could say, oh, that's what happened to them. They're just missing. Let me show you this article. An analysis of the U.S. Census data by the New York Times shows that 1.5 black million are missing from everyday life. Some of this is incarceration, death, and overseas deployment, but only 83 of them are around for every 100 black women, compared to 99 to 100 ratio among whites. That's, that's is quite amazing. Right. But also what happens is that these men, there are men, black men that just go missing, that aren't counted for by incarceration or anything, that just go and no one knows where they are and they're not found, they're not counted. It's like these aboriginal women in Canada that just go missing. And people don't try to find them because it's a racial issue. It's a racial issue. It's a, a poverty issue. A lot of times an abuse issue. Uh, there's all kinds of issues. And they don't put, when gang kids get killed and they don't put them, they don't write obituaries about them. Well, why do you think, the, like, let's take South Chicago in a way. I remember going through South Chicago uh, 10 years ago when my driver took a wrong turn and it was 
was a pretty scary place. It was a pretty, it was a place that uh, was, you know, kids were growing up in and it was, nothing was ever being done about it. It just seems to just stay the same or get worse. In spite of Obama being uh, president and uh, he was a community organizer, I think, even in, in South Chicago. Why do you think that we can't seem to really get a handle on it. Well, I think it started with redlining. Do you know what redlining is? No, please explain. Redlining started when, you know, there was the end of slavery, right? So what they did is they actually put red lines around certain parts uh, of communities everywhere. And those communities were the places where Black people could live. Right. And so what they didn't put there were banks, good businesses, good car dealerships, nicer stores, good places for education. All the good stuff didn't go in the red line district. So if you were like one house out of the red line district, you were fine. So you might be going to your next door neighbor might be going to the good school and you're going to the crummy school and you don't, you can't get a loan at the bank and you don't qualify for anything because you live in the red line district. And this has been happening ever since. So there's a whole culture that had grown, has grown up out of redlining. So there's two things, there's redlining. And then there's the fact that people culturally name their children things uh, differently from black cultures and brown cultures. And so schools see a kid whose name is Jamal and a kid whose name is John who have the same grades and maybe Jamal even has better grades, but they're more inclined to let John in the school. There's something like 83 to 92% more inclined to let John in the school than Jamal. So if John in his red line district is the number one student, then even if he happens to be the kid that goes to Harvard, he still has to be the top of his class. Then he still has to keep succeeding. So percentage of the possibility that someone out of a red line district gets to achieve and succeed is so small. So the first thing that has to happen is all these red line districts need to get banking, all the good stuff that everybody else has. They, this well, does that begin from within or without, or is it both? I mean, I take Snoop Dogg uh, over in South LA, who has done so much for his community. The neighborhood cleans up, the, the kids they don't have something to, to really hang on to and, and excel. You know, I, I really applaud that because he really has walked the walk with that. But, you know, the way all politics is local and it's, you know, it's, you know, if you make a difference in even one person's life, that's, you know, it's, it's like saving a soul, you know? Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that begets 10 and 10 more. You know, certainly I think it needs government, you know, federal level, it, it needs to get involved, yes, to make a even playing field for everyone. Yet also at the at the local level, it's you know it's it's a tough cycle to get out of poverty and what it they get and you know you're talking about the redlining and you know with Juneteenth, which was tell you the truth, I'd never heard uh, the story of before about in, in Oklahoma and uh, that was really the kind of financial Wall Street uh, for uh, Black America. In Oklahoma. No, I, and I didn't know about it until I also started, and I saw the series about it. 
incredible story that was just as like slavery had you know never ended and that was uh, i think in the 20s but uh i really uh, applaud what's going on you know like you said i think it comes from the pain has got to come out first and when the pain comes out it hurt comes out as anger it takes a while for the discussion to really actually get real and productive and productive yeah in other words becoming a a discussion rather than a shouting match it's taken time for each of these things that i've had the honor of helping to address whether it's aids or breast cancer or homelessness or whatever it is it takes takes real it takes time and then and sometimes you actually do have to have a screaming match yeah you do sometimes you have to say you know you just can't keep doing this like i know this seems wrong to you but it is the right thing it is the right action and we have to move forward we have to yeah and you know it it's hard sometimes to get people to bend yes it's hard to legislate culture hypocrisy it's hard to legislate uh, uh, ignorance speaking about screaming about like what's going on with with sharon stone these days because I think before we wrap it up, I got I got to know about your first. Let's get the juicy okay. stuff. Are you seeing anybody? <laughs> <laughs> I'm. Uh, you know, I I've tried, <laughs> Dennis. God knows I've tried. Um, but I feel like I am not suited for the technical age of dating. I'm not a social media dater. I don't think. Oh, um, did you? Wasn't there a story that you tried? I, I went on I got kicked off. You I went on Bumble. They kicked me off. And then I, I social media them right back. What did they say? Movie stars not allowed? They said it wasn't me. Some guy who I was like, I, I really don't want to talk to you. Um, said it couldn't possibly have been me because, of course, if it was, I obviously would have wanted to talk to him. I social mediaed about why they kicked me off and then they let me back on so graciously. And uh, after using it for a ton of PR. And um, so, yeah, I tried that. I, I tried that. I really, I really did address it too. Like, I'm going to address this like I do other things that I'm successful at and stop addressing it like dating, which I'm very unsuccessful at, and see if I can figure this out. I think you ought to start your own dating website. That's what I think. Let me tell you, I am not good at it. I, really, I think the answer here is I am not good at it. Um, well, you certainly are not at a loss for men in your life with your kids. You know, but I have teenage boys. And- they were, I, yeah, I remember that. Gosh, they were little when we, yeah. when we, when we did our movie together. And, uh, how are they doing? Are they going to get in? A, the in little one home? that was around when we did our movie is 20. Yeah. Uh, and my other ones are 14 and 15, which is that really interesting age, you know, where they're starting to like girls and figure yeah. out that and figure out how girls treat them and how they want to respond to it. And um, it's really interesting. It's interesting to see them figuring out their own boundaries and their own ethics and their own, you know, where they come in at a certain point and, and talk to me and this is what she's doing. What does that mean? <laughs> well, I can tell uh, this, that uh, they're certainly lucky to have a mom like you. And I bet you have taught them 
how to walk on the sides of their feet so you can be quiet in the woods with animals like here. Yes, we do. We do. We talk about all things. You know, it's interesting to be the mom and the dad because my children are adopted. And so we talk about all the things. Well, you're you're always fascinating to talk to. And I thank you so much for being uh, with me today. You know, I'm saying I've seen you at a, at a couple of charity events and it seems like you're always doing, you're just always doing for other people all the time. Well, let me Fast- just say, when I see you, you're usually performing with your band and giving your all too, so. You're just incredible. God bless you, Sharon Stone. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.